0: The parable of the Good Samaritan is one of the most well-known, beloved, and influential portions of the New Testament. It's a striking narrative about care and compassion for others in this Gospel of Luke. It has reverberated through the centuries, calling us to profound love in a public Sense using personal action. The tension between Jesus and the religious leaders is apparent here. The tension, of course, is on the religious leaders' side. They see Jesus becoming more and more known and popular among the populace. His words are taking root in their hearts, and they are getting worried. They don't like this a bit. So they have stationed one of their own to be with Jesus, tailing him. And in this parable, in this story, we see one of the religious leaders voicing a concern. And the concern isn't stated outright, it's implied. The concern is, who do you think you are? You're just the son of a carpenter. You haven't gone to rabbi school like we have. You don't know the scriptures like we do. So he asked Jesus a question, thinking he was going to try to trip Jesus up. And the the question is, What must I do to inherit eternal life? He is thereby revealing himself probably as a Pharisee because there were two great sects among the religious leaders, the Pharisees, they believed in an everlasting life, and the Sadducees, who believed that this was it. When you die, you you die. So they were sad, you see. We all would have been sad. So this must have been a Pharisee, but he is said to be an expert in the law. Now, that doesn't mean he's an attorney as we think of attorneys. It was the religious law of the day um, that he was uh, an expert in. So he, asking Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life, is revealing something about himself, a Pharisee. But perhaps by his very demeanor and dress, he is also revealing himself to be an expert in the law. They took great pride in who they were, and they wore boxes of scripture verses, sometimes on their foreheads, sometimes on their arms or forearms or wrists. They were called phylacteries and in these boxes, these verses of scripture were stored and these phylacteries identified them as very important people. So Jesus seeing that this is a VIP in the religious sense, standing here asking him the question, turned the tables and put it back on this religious leader. What do you say? And the man, eager to display his knowledge to all those people standing around, said, well, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength, all your soul, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, good answer. And then, because he is trying to trip Jesus up, he asked, who is my neighbor? Now, being a, a religious expert in this religious law, he's acquainted with detail. <clears throat> who is my neighbor would have been a natural question that he and his kind would ask. They dealt with such details as this. This is literally one of the laws. They would have conferences periodically to talk about these details and to decide exactly what was okay and what wasn't okay. So one of their questions was, if you have a cold and you find yourself sneezing and you need A handkerchief can you carry the handkerchief on a Sabbath and the answer is no because that's a burden well not having a handkerchief on the Sabbath if you have a cold might be problematic so if you pin the handkerchief to your clothes then it becomes an article of clothing and therefore is not a burden you see what I'm saying about the details so when he asked Jesus who is my neighbor he was expecting to get some definition here really he was eager to know not just who do I have to love but also who do I not have to love so Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, in this parable, to understand it as the people in Jesus' day did, we need to know a little something of the background. Now, because this is a parable that is so well known, I'm going to assume you know it pretty well, so I'm not going to go into all of the detail, but it's important to know something about this road that Jesus is talking about, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 24 miles thereabouts, and it is steep. Jerusalem is 2,300 feet above sea level. The surface of the Dead Sea, near which the city of Jericho is located, is 1,300 feet below sea level. So in the space of 24 miles, the elevation drops 3,600 feet. It's steep. And not only that, it's narrow. There are cliffs on one side, a sheer drop on the other side in many places. There are switchbacks. There are boulders. There are outcroppings, it's a great place, if you're a robber, to hide and ambush unsuspecting travelers, which was done routinely. This was a dangerous road. The people knew it. In fact, as recently as 1930s, there was a band of robbers that used to stop cars on the Jericho Road, rob the travelers, before they sent them on their way. This has been a bad place. So the people hearing this knew it. We also need to know about the characters involved. The priest came, saw this guy lying there, and went on his way, stepped over or around him and went on. The Levite, too, came and stepped over or around and went on his way. Now, these were temple people. The priest was one who participated in and was in charge of the liturgy and the worship. The Levites were at one time priests, but during the course of hundreds of years they they kind of were downgraded to become lesser priests and by the time of Jesus they were they kind of took care of the temple stuff. They were guards they were custodians Sometimes they were responsible for slaughtering the animals, but mostly the priests did that. So they were working hand in glove, so to speak, with the priests, maintaining the ritual of worship in one way or another. Now, the the thing about working in the temple, you had to be regarded as holy, holy. And you couldn't do certain things and still be holy. For example, you could not touch a dead body. If you touched a dead body, you were unholy for seven full days or until you could maintain a cleansing ritual and become holy again. But that could only happen after seven days. So if these to the priest and the Levite, touched this man, and he proved to be dead, they lost their chance to serve in the temple. It was on a rotating basis. So they were on the way to the temple to do their part, to do their duty, and also to rejoice in the opportunity that gave them and they didn't want to risk the ritual. So they went on. The Samaritan, of course, was of that sect that, uh, well, of that group of people that the Jews hated. Now, for more information about why Jews hated the Samaritans, I would suggest that you come to the Wednesday morning studies led by uh, Dr. Lloyd Allen and during the course of his lecture, raise your hand and say, "Tell me about the Samaritans." I don't know where Lloyd is, but there you are He meets at 11 o'clock in the admin on um, the uh, education building so I plan to be there, and if you don't ask him, I will. But the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. So this Samaritan comes along. Here's a Jew lying here, maybe dead. And the Samaritan has a choice. Like the priest, like the Levite, he can walk on past, and he has better reason to do so than they do because this man lying there probably hates him. So he has the choice. He can minister to this man, try to put what medicines he might have on his wounds, put him on his animal, his horse or donkey, take him to an inn, pay the innkeeper, promise to take care of whatever other expenses are incurred, or he, he can forget it. And of course, you know what he did. This parable t- teaches us many things. There are several takeaways. One is as impressed as God is with our worship, and, and I say that only slightly tongue in cheek because. I know that God must appreciate our genuine worship. But as impressive as that may be to God, God is more impressed by our love than by our liturgy. Have you noticed that sometimes we can get so caught up in church work That we don't have time or energy to do God's work. We learn from this parable that people might disregard and detest others. But these others who are so disregarded and detested can be closer to the heart of God if they love people more than we do. The Samaritan did what he could. Maybe it was enough. Maybe the man died. We don't know. But he did what he could. We will always have excuses for doing nothing. But he chose to ignore those voices within him urging him not to have anything to do with this man who hates him. And instead, he bound his wounds and took care of him. For some, that's all they can do. They take care of immediate needs. These are people who are great at crisis intervention. This is an important and loving work. It's God's work. Some time ago, I had the privilege of going with my uncle, actually taking my uncle to Germany. He had been stationed at an army post called in the 1960s and always wanted to go back but never had the opportunity. So as we were talking on the phone one night, he lived south of St. Louis in Missouri, I said, well, I'll go with you. So we planned the trip, we went, my uncle, as long as I can remember, had a huge scar all across his left cheek. And I had heard stories about how he got that in a car accident. But as we were touring Swabish Gmund, this area that had been an army post but was now um, an accelerated, um, high school for promising gifted students, and we met some of the students, and as we left, he made the comment, I hope my scar didn't scare them too badly. This scar was 50 years old. I had no idea he was so self-conscious about a 50-year-old scar. So as we were traveling, In a rental car, I had the opportunity to ask him about that. On March the 10th, 1951, he was riding in the middle of the front seat. Two of his brothers were in the car, one driving, one uh, riding shotgun. They had been to St. Genevieve, if any of you know where that is, and were returning home. As they crested the hill, they met A 1947 Chrysler coming at them in their lane, passing a slower moving car. The drivers slammed on the brakes, but they hit head on. If you saw a picture of that 35 Dodge in which they were riding, you would believe no one could live through it. But they all three did. Although my uncle Raymond, riding in the middle, hit the windshield, knocked out his front teeth, and cut him from the top of his ear down to under his nose. He told me that although he never lost consciousness, he was keenly aware that he was bleeding profusely. Some people would stop and look and offer to help some, but there was not much they could do. But a man in a brand new Buick stopped and said, son, if we don't get you to the hospital, you're going to bleed to death right here on the side of the road. So he put my uncle in the back seat of his new Buick. My uncle bled all over him. Took him to the hospital, got him settled in the emergency room and drove off. My uncle said, I've always wondered who that man was. I didn't even get his name. But a Samaritan, a good Samaritan who did what he could. It was crisis intervention. Without doubt, without his help, I wouldn't have an Uncle Raymond these days. He did what he could. There are so many who are wonderful at crisis intervention, helping those who are bleeding. My dear wife is not one of those. Blood is not her thing. Hospitals are not really her thing. There are some people like that. They uh, Don't ask them to bind up a person's bleeding wounds, but they're good at other things and they offer their love in other ways. Others are gifted to meet needs, not in direct, hands-on ways. Let's, let's imagine for a moment what would have happened if this Samaritan, the next time he came down this road, found another man in exactly the same situation in pretty much the same place. Would he have bound up his wounds? Well, Undoubtedly he would have. And how about the third time? And the fourth? And the fifth? If he had found someone in the same place, in the same circumstance, what would he have done? Would he have grown indifferent, would he have developed compassion fatigue, would he have liked the like the priest and the Levite, would he have gone on, or would he have said to himself, something needs to be done here, there's something about this place that is so dangerous that people who travel here are attacked. There's something about the people who control this area that they are allowing this to continue. If he had continued to bind up the wounds, transport him to the inn, pay the innkeeper, it wouldn't be long before the innkeeper would say, it's to my financial advantage to have the wounds keep occurring. There comes a time when some other kind of loving intervention is necessary. There are those who patch up the wounds, but there are others who say something has to be done. One can assume that in such a scenario, the Samaritan would have said, I've got to intervene. I've got to do what I can, not just in the moment, but for the future as well. Now, lest some of you get a little nervous and thinking I'm about to get into politics, let me share with you I have no intention of doing so. I am simply preaching the gospel of Jesus. In the book of Amos, the prophet had grown up in the southern kingdom called Israel, and he was a farmer. Nothing wrong with being a farmer. I come from a long line of farmers myself. But God called him to go into the neighboring country to the north, Israel, and proclaim a message to them. Now Israel had its own prophet appointed by the king, Jeroboam II, in about 765 BC. And Amos went into Israel where Amaziah the prophet was prophesying, proclaiming, what he said was God's word. And Amos said, God has taken a plumb line to the society and the religion of the north, of, the, of Israel, and he has found you to be crooked. And he says, he's going to tear it all down. You might suppose that Amaziah, Israel's prophet, wasn't too keen on that message. He told the king, this guy Amos is over here causing trouble. We need to send him back. In fact, he told Amos, go home. You're you're nothing but a farmer anyway. Amos said, you're right. I'm nothing but a farmer. But God told me to come here and tell you this. Now, what he was telling them was there was a huge gap between the very rich and the very poor. And this gap was creating problems for them, for the poor more than for the rich. And Amos was saying, God does not take kindly to this kind of treatment of his In the 82nd Psalm, we find much the same thing. The psalmist says that it is wickedness, it is wickedness to ignore the plights of the poor and the needy. The responsibility of God's people to care for their needy neighbors is beyond dispute James the Lord's own brother says something very similar religion that our God and Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the word, by the world. Excuse me. We, the community of disciples, true Christ followers in our own age, we are called to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. We are called to help them in their poverty and need. Some will interact with them directly while others are called to attack the social causes of poverty and need. It's easier, of course, to step to the other side. It's hard not to become indifferent when there is so much need. It's tempting to take a different route and go around them or retreat into a gated community where we don't have to see the need at all. But if we do, we will not deserve to be called good, much less a good Samaritan. Neighbor love is not optional.